Howdy, and welcome to, believe it or not, the 200th episode of the Six Gun Justice podcast, where we celebrate the blazing six-gun action of the Western genre in books, movies, TV, and any other media at home on the range. I'm your host, Paul Bishop. Joining me today as my very special guest for this landmark episode is Christopher Conway, a professor at the University of Texas at Arlington. He teaches Mexican and Latin American literature and culture in the Department of Modern Languages. His fascination with the ways the Western has traveled across international borders is reflected in his scholarly works such as Heroes of the Borderlands, published in 2019, and the recently released The Comic Book Western, New Perspectives on a Global Genre. Hey, Chris, welcome to the Six Gun Justice podcast. Thank you, Paul. I'm really excited to be here. This is my first podcast. Welcome to the new age. I'm delighted and excited to have this conversation with you. Terrific. I'd like to start off just telling the tale of how we came into contact, which really started with a tweet from Australian pulp guru Andrew Nett regarding Heroes of the Borderland. How do you know Andrew? I've been following Andrew on Twitter for many years, five, six, seven years. I've lost track. I really like his tweets about crime paperbacks, hard-boiled paperbacks, and I've just stayed in touch with him through Twitter and, in fact, invited him to participate in a volume that should be coming out in a year or so about Westerns in world literature, and so he's become a collaborator as well. Proving that Twitter is actually good for something. (laughs) Yes, there are one or two (laughs) things it's good for. (laughs) When I saw Andrew's tweet, I was intrigued to check out Heroes of the Borderland. As one of my interests is the international appeal of the Western in countries such as Germany, England, Australia, Norway, which really have long histories of indigenously produced Westerns. So I flipped over to Amazon and ordered a copy before responding to Andrew's tweet with a snarky but tongue-in-cheek comment about him having cost me money, having no idea you would see it. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you didn't feel called out. I went, was that really bad to say that or was it okay? I was very excited to see someone whose work I'd read, some of your articles about paperback westerns, and I really admire your work and the work of some of your colleagues in those books about paperback westerns that you've put out there, because there are very few scholars, professors, people affiliated with institutions of higher learning that are researching this kind of popular culture. And so I really take notice of people who are writing intelligently and doing well-researched work. Thank you. Heroes of the Borderland is actually a scholarly tome. So the cost is reflected as a textbook cost as opposed to the cost of a normal hardcover. But the fact of the matter is that both Heroes of the Borderland and the comic book Western are eminently readable, despite their scholarly standing. They're very accessible even to casual fans who want to dig a little deeper into the genre and its appeal beyond America. I appreciate you saying that. Sometimes I take a little bit because of that from my colleagues in academia, because in academia, scholars often fetishize jargon and convoluted language. And I've always wanted to communicate as clearly as possible. And I've always tried to reach more than one audience. I want to speak to other professors, other scholars who maybe are doing very specialized work. But I also want to talk to Paul Bishop. I want to talk to your listeners. I want to talk to a random person who's interested and passionate about collecting, about learning more about the history of Westerns. This is a topic that goes beyond academia. This is a topic that normal people are excited about. I come from a family where Westerns were really popular. My mom loved Shane. That was the movie that 
she always talked about. My dad was excited about the Cisco Kid. And my older brother, John, collects comics of all kinds and is obsessed with television westerns. And so I want to write things that people like my parents, they're not with us anymore, but people like my parents, like my brother, people like you and your listeners might be interested in exploring. It's almost a tightrope walk between the scholarly approach and what is always considered a lowbrow genre. It's not just a popular culture genre. It's often considered beneath a scholarly interest, which, quite frankly, makes me angry because there's so much of these, quote unquote, lowbrow interests that have influenced culture for years now. So true. And what's curious is for the last 20 or 30 years, Scholars affiliated with universities, specialists, have talked a lot about the importance of studying popular culture. And yet, within that arena of popular culture, there are these hierarchies. And in my book, Heroes of the Borderlands, I talk a little bit about, for example, we have a big awareness of the Santo movies, the cult wrestling movies that come out of Mexico. And there's a lot of scholarship about that kind of Mexican popular culture. But Westerns within the context of Mexico and within other contexts as well, also American studies, is very much devalued. It's seen as being, as you say, lowbrow. And one of the reasons why I think scholars struggle with it is you need to have an archive to work on this kind of material. And so in the case of Western comics, unless you have a large collection of comic book Westerns, how are you going to speak about it? Unless you have a DVD collection of obscure, nearly forgotten Mexican film Westerns, how can you have the knowledge base to write something about it? And so this is where my hobby of collecting things, which I am trying to let that go, Paul, because it's a disease. Collecting things, I don't have enough room for it. <laughs> but I find that through collecting, I was able to build archives that gave me a platform to try to apply some of the critical topics that are used in academia to explore Westerns. Part of the issue also is Americans consider the Western, along with jazz, as one of the two homegrown art forms. We're very nationalistic about it. In other words, we don't really see it as being of interest outside of American borders. We miss so much by not recognizing how vast the reach of the Western genre has been. Yes, that's very true. I think people are often shocked to find out how popular Westerns have been throughout the world, not only Europe. A lot of people are aware about European Westerns thanks to spaghetti Westerns, less so in the context of Latin America. But beginning in the 1930s in Mexico and Argentina, we've got a vast amount of material being produced related to Westerns. We've got U.S. newspaper syndicates that are selling Red Rider comics and Lone Ranger comics and all kinds of other Western comics throughout the world, the Spanish-speaking world in Latin America, but also in Europe. So we've got these comics blanketing Europe and South America. But even if you go further back in time, and I know you're aware of Karl May, a 19th century German novelist who wrote many Western novels that then became very popular movies in Europe, the old Shatterhand movies. In the 19th century, Karl May was just one of numerous novelists who were copying and emulating American Westerns for German readers, for Spanish readers, for French readers. In fact, 
fact, I just finished a scholarly article about a Spanish Western from the 19-teens, from 1916, 1917, because in Spain in that time period and throughout the 20th century, there were a huge number of Spanish authors cranking out these short dime novels for readers. In fact, some of the novels that were produced in Spain were later distributed throughout Latin America and became really popular there. So I could go to a Mexican bakery here in Dallas, where I live, and I can find Western novelette written by Spaniards from the 1940s. They're still being reprinted out of Miami in the 2000s, and they're still available in bakeries and Mexican supermarkets. The author I'm thinking about is Marcial La Fuente Estefania, who between the mid-1940s and the early 1980s wrote over 2,000 Western novelettes and one of the most widely read authors in the Spanish language. So in Mexico, in Argentina, in Venezuela, and Central America, these are books that people selling them on the street, selling them in pharmacies. It's the lowest of the low in terms of literature, but people don't realize that those roots go far back in time and even cross the Atlantic. In the 40s, 50s, 60s, and into the early 70s, the Western dominated all forms of media, TV, radio, comics, novels in America. And then it faded away for a while and was somewhat rescued by the Piccadilly Cowboys, who were the English authors who were writing these uber-violent Westerns that became popular again in America. Then that spawned the adult Western boom, which traditional Western fans and writers hated because of the sexual connotations to it. But it kept the Western going. At the moment, the Western is, quite frankly, very healthy and thriving again. But while it's the ebb and flow has come in America where this art form started, around the world, it's just been a constant interest. There hasn't been that ebb and flow. Yeah, that's so interesting what you're saying. And the Piccadilly writers are really fascinating to me. And I confess, I do have some of those original paperbacks in my collection. What people don't realize is that the Western is a very capacious genre. Critics of the Western, and once in a while on Twitter, dare I go there, once in a while on Twitter, I'll see someone post a link to an article attacking the Western. But the premise of that attack is the Western is one thing. It's nationalistic, it's racist, it's sexist, etc. It's like uh, the most elementary and generalized definition of what a Western is, a most stereotyped definition. And of course, there are many Westerns of that type. And in a certain period of time, Westerns, you could say, were very much in that mode. But when you look at the history of American Westerns and also abroad, you see so much diversity, so much change. You've got Black Westerns, you've got Native American films filmmakers and writers who are also engaging with the genre. It's a form creators play with, they tinker with, they break it down. John Ford himself in The Searchers was trying to do something very critical there, as you and your listeners know. And so many other directors, people sometimes associate with the mainstream of Westerns. And so sometimes I chafe a little bit under the word Western because I'm afraid that people think it only means one thing. And as we know, it means many different things in many different contexts. On one end, you have The Searchers and Shane and Red River. And on the other end, you have the more quickie Westerns, the 120-page Westerns that were dropped down to make a publishing buck or whatever it is. So Westerns, like most literature, runs the gamut of good to bad to great. 
With the Western, though, we are hearing the criticism of the Westerns as far as it's a white man's novel, that it's sexist and it's racist. There may be some consideration of that, but the Western, as you say, is changing. What I'm not hearing from the woke generation, however, is that the rest of the world is using cultural appropriation by making the Western their own. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah, it's interesting how beginning in the mid-19th century, Europeans are appropriating the American Western and its setting and its characters. And in Mexico, we've got the same thing happening as well. Although I try to argue in my book, I try to show what's happening with Mexican Westerns is that you've got a tradition of gunfighter stories that's native to Mexico and is very, quote unquote, Mexican. It exists once film and pulp literature starts arriving from the United United States. And so Mexican consumers and creators and editors and filmmakers recognize in the Western something that's close to what they already have in terms of stories of horsemen, bandits, and shootouts. And they start merging these things together, creating what I call hybrid Westerns, Westerns that are combining cultural elements from the U.S. and from Mexico. And the same thing applies to the history of comics in Europe. My latest co-edited book with Antoinette Soule, my dear friend, Tony Soule, the comic book Western. In that book, we talk a little bit about how, for example, when some American Western comics were syndicated to Italy, for example, they added more text. They had to do more than translate because a lot of the Italian comics that existed at that time were text heavier. And the audience in Italy was more used to that and wanted more text. And so when some of these American comics arrived, rather than only translating the words that were in English, they expanded them. And so we have a process that's not really translation, but really transcreation. It's a mixture of translation with adding more in there. Culture is always in flux. It's always being pushed in different directions and being mixed with other cultural elements. For me, that's a fascinating process. You mentioned when a Western premise is taken by somebody in an international setting, be it Mexico, Spain, Italy, Australia, the writer then applies a cultural twist that is part of the culture of that country that it's being written in to the Western. I think that's what makes it special on that level. They are not simply copying but they are changing the Western to fit and say something about their culture. Exactly. For me, Heroes of the Borderlands was an attempt to do a cultural history of modern Mexico as told through Westerns. In other words, how do we use comic book Westerns in Mexico, extremely popular and dominant in Mexico? People don't realize this. I was at a conference once with another professor who worked on comics. We were on a panel together. I gave a presentation on Mexican comic book Westerns well before I had written this book. And afterwards, he was somewhat polite, but he said, yeah, OK, this isn't that popular. He was dead wrong. That interaction was part of something that I kept on remembering as I was writing the book, the urgency of writing the book. I want to show that this is really very omnipresent in 20th century Mexican culture. I wanted to use 
comic book westerns and major Mexican films and some lesser Mexican films because they made a huge number of Western films in Mexico because they were so cheap to make and they were so popular among the Mexican-American population in the United States. People don't realize that as early as the late 1940s, there were nearly 700 venues showing Mexican films in the United States. In Texas alone, there were over 150 and in California, nearly 100. And what kind of films were those Mexican immigrants and second generation immigrants watching in those films? People have done some studies on this. And besides the Cantinflas comedies, which is the Charlie Chaplin of Mexico, the Western films of Antonio Aguilar, someone that is prominent in my book, it was very much on the heels of Cantinflas as the second most popular figure. And so I wanted to take all of these films that are in Mexico and impacting viewers there and readers there and also across the border in the United States among immigrant audiences. And I wanted to show how these films reflect Mexican culture. Mexican historical elements, and show how these filmmakers were weaving together elements from Shane, elements from The Searchers, elements from these very canonical American films or references into a product that is also composed with Mexican ingredients. I'd like to talk about a film that you mentioned early in Heroes of the Borderlands, The Magnificent Seven. Okay. First of all, that's my favorite Western. But if I look at it in context, there's this very interesting feel to this Western being filmed in Mexico with a lot of interference from the Mexican government who have bad dealings with Hollywood film companies showing the Mexican culture in a very bad way. So they insisted on some things like the Mexican farmers having almost spotless clothing, that type of thing. But it showed the Mexican peasant, quote unquote, or at least the American idea of that. And it showed the Mexican gangster element, the almost organized crime element. But they wouldn't put a Mexican lead for the main villain. They bring in Eli Wallach. (laughs) He fits the part very well. And Eli Wallach says the director actually hired a gang of Mexican bandits to make the film look realistic as his cohorts. And they took him aside and they taught him about what it was to be a Mexican bandit leader and what was important to them. And the conchos down the side of his pants said he had to have this display of wealth. That's what Mexican bandit leaders did. And I thought so much of that was missed because, of course, it's not talked about in the film. It's talked about much later as we begin to try to figure out why this film wasn't a success first in America. It was a success worldwide before it became a success in America. Yeah, and what I find so enjoyable about conversations about The Magnificent Seven is it relates to this issue that you mentioned a few moments ago, which is how Americans tend to think about the Western as an exclusively American thing. But something like The Magnificent Seven, which at this point people consider to be Western par excellence, American Western par excellence, is in turn inspired by The Seven Samurai, one of my all-time favorite movies as well. I love these stories that you mentioned, and I've read parts of Eli Wallach's autobiography about his experiences working on The Magnificent Seven, and I was really interested not only in what you mentioned, but also his relationship with Emilio Fernandez. Most American listeners of your podcast who are fans of Westerns know El Indio Fernandez from many films, most notably The Wild Bunch. He plays the Mexican general who gets killed at the end, and El Indio Fernandez was one of 
of Mexico's greatest film directors of the golden age of cinema in Mexico. And and that was roughly mid-1940s through mid-1950s. And he directed these extraordinary art house films that were shown at the Cannes Film Festival and, and what have you. But at the same time, interestingly, Emilio Fernandez, known as El Indio Fernandez, was also a prominent actor in Mexican Westerns, usually playing villains, because he has a very severe countenance. He appears several times in my book because he's in so many Mexican Westerns. So he was brought in to be a kind of shadow director or an advisor to the filmmakers in terms of the representation of Mexicans in that film. And so in those scenes of The Magnificent Seven, when the villagers do a fiesta and we see a very documentary-like moment where the villagers are dancing and there's a really interesting texture to those scenes. I've always wondered, was El Indio Fernandez behind the camera in those scenes? Was he directing that particular part? And that's why I refer to The Magnificent Seven as a film that, of course, it's an American Western, but it's got such a rich texture to it that is international, thanks to these elements that you've called our attention to. And it really does turn the Mexican characters into heroes. The last line of the film is, only the farmers win. As Chris rides off into the sunset, the man in black, the gunslingers, as they leave, you know, only the farmers win. Here are people standing up for themselves and being brave and doing the things that they do. And Charles Bronson in the movie, when he gets mad at the kids who are idolizing him and saying, I'm not a hero, your fathers are a hero. It really spoke on a level that we don't realize until now. This was really an esteeming film for the Mexican people. Those are really good points, Paul. I agree with you. And the character of Charles Bronson is really intriguing to me. And I have a hypothesis. I don't know if I can prove it or not. Maybe someone else will come along and prove it when they see it in my book and think about it more deeply and do more research. But his name in the film is O'Reilly. And that's significant because one of the most famous episodes of the U.S.-Mexico War of 1846 is when a group of Irish Catholic soldiers from the American side defected to the Mexican side and fought against the American, in part because the majority of the American armed forces were Protestant and pretty anti-Catholic. For a lot of these recent Irish immigrants who were in the army and were observing the destruction of churches, etc., they got very upset and identified with the people they were supposedly fighting against. The leader of this battalion of Irish Catholics who defected to the Mexican side, his name was O'Reilly. <laughs> and I just wonder if there's a kind of a call out to O'Reilly for Mexican audiences in the film. I think it's possible. I don't know if I can prove it. We do know Mexican censors, Mexican advisors were involved in the making of this film, as you say. But the fact The Magnificent Seven is based on the seven samurai, there's a huge history of samurai stories from Japan. And then for years, the plot of The Magnificent Seven is translated into many other genres, including science fiction and so many others. It shows the power of these types of stories, their personal stories. And they cut across not just all genres of media, but across all genres of culture. Each culture finds something in it for them. 
Yeah. What is so rich about the Western as a genre, and we can say the same about crime stories or detective fiction as well, is it crosses, as you say, so many different types of media. You've got your comic book strand, you've got your film strand, you've got your television strand, you've got your pulp strand, you've got your literary strand, where we've got authors writing serious literary fiction, but infused with genre elements. So when you study popular culture in this way, it's a buffet, my friend. You've got so much to work with. That's a mixed metaphor right there. (laughs) (laughs) Chris, we've barely touched the surface of this, and I'd like to invite you to come back. First of all, to go more in depth into Heroes of the Borderland, to talk about the directors and the influences it had. And then, again, to talk about the Western comics around the world. Would you do that with me? Oh, you're spoiling me silly, my friend. I'd love to come back. And this has been a great conversation. And I appreciate it. I'd love to come back. And that was just in time for the Chuck Wagon Triangle telling us it's time to bring this episode to a close with some shootouts and shoutouts. Chris, I really appreciate you being with me, and I look forward to diving more deeply into this as we go along. Thank you for having me, Paul. This was a lot of fun. Thanks to our Six Gun Justice Patreon subscribers for their one-time or monthly support. If you are so inclined, you can help cover the cost of the podcast by using the button at the top of our website, sixgunjustice.com. Prior Six Gun Justice podcast episodes continue to be available on all major podcast streaming platforms. Until we meet again, be kind to each other, be kind to yourself, and may all your trails be happy. Adios for now. I'm out of here. Let's ride. <laughs>